Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. Better to worship together than to be alone. I know there's alone times, but how many of you know there's just something about gathering together and worshiping? That's why the Bible says we shouldn't forsake that, that we should spend time together. Uh, there's strength in numbers. Can't get no help in this house already. I said there's strength in numbers, amen. Ever faced anything by yourself? No fun, is it? It's a lot more fun when you've got brothers and sisters that are in the fight with you, and that's why God has put us together. Uh, that's in line with where we've been over the last uh, several months, uh, actually since July of last year. We've been combating five principalities that the Lord uh, spoke to me very clearly that we should uh, address. Um, had an opportunity this week to go back and listen. I'd forgotten about it, honestly. I, I don't think we ought to, but I did. Uh, I forgot about it. Um, we had a guest speaker with us in November, Pastor Greg Hood, and he made a prophetic declaration over Julie and then came to me and made the statement that um, she would begin, make sure I get this right, she'd begin to, to proclaim or point out things and then I would break those things by proclamation. And I'd forgotten about that and I believe that what we've been on and, and are continuing on is an assignment. This is not just so that we kind of know where we're going in our sermon series over the course of months. I really do believe that from everything that we can see and what's going on around us, we are right in the midst of, a, of a, 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 a moment where we are making proclamations and God is breaking things. It starts in this house, y'all. It's got to start in this house. And then we carry it outside this house and break that around us. And so we've been talking about these five principalities. We started with the principality of isolation. We began to say that we were never designed to live life alone. Life together is better. God put us in relationship with one another. We need one another. Then we said that the second principality was poverty. We talked about the fact that many of us deal with poverty like this. God, give me more money. God doesn't break poverty by giving us more money. He gives us more stewardship, more diligence with what he's already given us. Some of y'all sitting around waiting for more money, and God has given you opportunities to learn to better deal with what you already have. And he will never give you more money until you figure out how to deal with what he's already given you because if he gave you more money, you would waste it. Can't get no help. Can't get no help. So we talked about how do you be blessed. And then, so now what we're doing is we continue an assault on hopelessness. And what we've said is that these uh, principalities, they work together. They cooperate. I want to say it like this this morning. They are cohorts. They, they, they are, they're in cahoots with one another. There's an old-fashioned term, cahoots. When's the last time you went to church and heard somebody say cahoots? They're in cahoots with Some of y'all are like, what in the world does that mean? They, they, they're comrades. They're sidekicks. They work together. And what I've discovered is they layer their attacks. That's how they work. It's not just that one will attack you. They set it up so that one will attack you, then another one will come along a few days later and attack you, and then another one will come along and attack you, trying to defeat you. That's how it works. They are trying to get you to lose heart. They're trying to get you to the place that David came to in Psalm chapter 27 when he said, I'm just about to give up. I'm just about to lose heart. He understood that if you ever lose heart, you lose hope. That's 
the, the, the issue for us. This is a heart issue for us. If we ever lose heart, we will lose hope. And if we ever lose hope, then we have nothing to share with anybody around us. That's why Paul told us in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, he describes that, that, that God has, is a God of hope. And then he says that we are to be so like him that we're overflowing. Go read it for yourself. We're supposed to be overflowing with hope. And yet everywhere I go, I see believers that are overflowing with all kinds of stuff other than hope. Fear, anxiety, bitterness, anger, depression, but no hope. And so Paul said, look, it's not supposed to be like that. Uh, the common denominator among us, the thing that makes us attractive, it's not your Estee Lauder that makes you attractive. It's not your wardrobe that makes you attractive. What makes you attractive is that living in a hopeless world, you are shrouded with hope. And so we're going to deal with why. We've been dealing with why we're hopeless and the danger of hopelessness. And then here in about two weeks, we're going to start telling you why you should have hope so that we can become the most hope-filled people on the planet, so everybody will want what we have. Well, today's passage of Scripture that we're going to go through shows once again how these principalities work together in cooperation. So I want you to join me. It's kind of a lengthy portion, but I think you need all of it to understand what's, being, what's taking place. It's found, we're still in 2 Kings. We were in 2 Kings chapter 6 last week. This week we're backing up to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 8, and we're going to read down through verse 31. It says, one day Elisha passed through Shunem. A leading lady of the town talked him into stopping for a meal. And then it became his custom. Whenever he passed through, he stopped by for a meal. I'm certain, said the woman to her husband, that, listen to this, listen to what she said. She said, I'm certain that this man who stops by with, with us all the time is a holy man of God. She was certain. Why don't we add on a small room upstairs and furnish it with a bed and a desk, a chair and a lamp so that when he comes by, he can stay with us? And so it happened that the next time Elisha came by that he went to the room and he lay down for a nap. Then he said to his servant, his servant Gehazi, tell the Shunammite woman I want to see her. And he called her and she came to him. And through Gehazi, Elisha said, you've gone far beyond the call of duty in taking care of us. What can we do for you? Do you have a request that we can bring to the king or to the commander of the army? She replied, nothing. I'm secure and satisfied in my family. And Elisha conferred with Gehazi, and there's, not, there's got to be something we can do for her, but what? And Gehazi said, well, she has no son, and her husband is an old man. Call her in, said Elisha. He called her, and she stood at the open door, and Elisha said to her, this time next year you're going to be nursing an infant son. Oh, my master, oh, holy man, she said, don't play games with me, teasing me with such fantasies. The woman conceived. A year later, just as Elisha had said, she had a son. The child grew up, and one day he went to his father, who was working with the harvest hands, complaining, my head, my head. And his father ordered a servant, carry him to his mother. The servant took him in his arms and carried him to his mother, and he lay on her lap until noon, and he died. She took him up and she laid him on the bed of the man of God and she shut him alone and left. And then she called her husband, get me a servant and a donkey so I can go to the holy man. I'll be back as soon as I can. But why today? This isn't a holy day. It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, don't ask questions. I need to go right now. Trust me. She went ahead and sat on the donkey ordering her servant, take the lead and go as fast as you can. I'll tell you if you're going too fast. And so off she went. 
She came to the holy man at Mount Carmel, and the holy man, spotting her while she was still a long ways off, said to his servant Gehazi, Look out there, why, why, it's the Shunammite woman. Quickly now, ask her, is something wrong? Are you all right? Your husband, your child. Listen to what she says. She said, everything's fine. But when she reached the holy man at the mountain, she threw herself at his feet and held tightly to him. And Gehazi came up to pull her away. But the holy man said, leave her alone. Can't you see that she's in distress? But God hasn't let me in on why. I'm completely in the dark. Then she spoke up. Did I ask you for a son, master? Didn't I tell you? Don't tease me with false hopes. Another version says, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? He ordered, Gehazi, don't lose a minute. Grab my staff and run as fast as you can. If you meet anyone, don't even take time to greet him. And if anyone greets you, don't even answer. Lay my staff across the boy's face. The boy's mother said, as sure as God lives and you lives, you're not living, leaving me behind. And so Gehazi let her take the lead and follow behind. But Gehazi arrived first and laid the staff across the boy's face. But there was no sound. No, son of li- no sign of life. And Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and said, the boy hasn't stirred. And I'm not going to take the time to read the rest of it, but the rest of it is that Elisha makes his way to the house, goes up in the room, lays down on the boy and breathes life into him, and he comes back to life. You may read this account and make this conclusion. There seems to be no combination of attacks, like I've talked about how the enemy layers his attacks. But this woman was literally trapped in poverty. Well, you say that's contradictory to what you just read because the the, the Bible says it like this. Uh, The word says that she was well off. But I would submit to you that although she was well off financially, she was still trapped in poverty. You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the fact that she had money, but she had no son. I'm talking about the fact that she was rich in resources, but she was impoverished in, re- impoverished in relationship. She was elevated in status, but she was broken stigma of childlessness. So it is a layered attack. She is in poverty, and while she's in poverty, hopelessness takes root. Let me see if I can help you this morning. It is when Elisha shows up on the scene, his presence seems to expose the hopelessness of her life. It is obvious to me that every Sunday people walk in and they have this tendency to hide hopelessness by fake smiles. How you doing? Blessed. Great. You about killed one another on the way to church, but but, uh, I'm blessed. All week long has been straight from the pit of hell, but you walk in and you smile. What I realized this morning is it, it, it is obvious that what takes place is that we get into the presence of God that it, that he has this tendency to expose our hopelessness. He does that by putting us with other people and they call out our hopelessness. That's exactly what takes place in this account. This seemingly altogether woman, she she has come face to face with this prophet, this man of God, and she wouldn't communicate her need. When, when he says, what can we do for you? She says, everything's fine. She refused to raise her hand when the call, did anybody have a need? Nobody would raise their hand. She refused to respond to the altar call because everybody might think less of me. And they think I've got it all together. That was her. That's exactly how she operated. She was putting on this facade, this front. Everything's okay. When the prophet knew that it wasn't okay. 
and her hopelessness is exposed. Elisha prophesies that this barren woman will have a child, and the description of the situation reveals to us just how hopeless it is. When he says, you will have a child, the description that is given is this, her husband was old. Do I need to, okay, you got, you got, they were beyond hope. In fact, her response to the prophet when he makes this declaration shows just how much hopelessness had gripped her heart because she says, please don't play games with me. In in one version, I read this, and it's an unbelievable way of saying this. When, When Elisha says to her, in one year you will give birth to a son, one version does this. It says, she objected. And she said, she makes this statement. She says it like this, no, my Lord. You think about that a moment. She gets this prophetic word that she's going to have a son, and hopelessness has so set up in her life that she objects and says, "Uh uh-uh, no, Lord, you're wrong. What I want to say to you this morning, two quick things, is this. I want to tell you that hopelessness is so dangerous because hopelessness, if it sets up inside of you and you allow it to become established and you allow it to take root, hopelessness can cause you to resist and in severe cases even refuse promises. Elisha is a proven prophet. In fact, by her own declaration, it says that she is certain that he's a man of God. She makes it obvious that she believes that because she makes an addition onto her house so that he can stay in her house. He is a proven commodity. But she has so lost hope that when she hears a proclamation from a man who she knows accurately speaks for God, she resists the promise. Hopelessness will cause you to believe promises for everybody else but you. The words that Elisha speaks over this woman are words that I would submit to you that she has dreamed about, that she has begged to hear, that she has longed to hear. She has probably cried herself to sleep night after night for years saying, I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. I have no inheritance. I'm less than. I'm a nobody. And now she has come to this place in where she's so hopeless that a man of God shows up that she knows is accurate and knows is correct and he makes a proclamation and she dismisses the promise as fantasy. I want to say to you this morning that we know that the words that spoke to her hopelessness that that the words that he spoke spoke to her hopelessness because later when she goes to find the prophet for help she says, you raised my hopes. She didn't laugh when she heard it. You remember the story in the Old Testament where Sarah gets, they're kind of in the same situation. She gets a prophetic word that she's going to have a baby, a son, and she laughs. She, this lady didn't laugh, but she dismisses it and says, no, Lord, not me. I can't, you're, you're messing, you're raising my hopes. You're giving me false expectations. Her objection speaks to us. My question to you this morning is how many of us who have learned to cover our hopelessness with a smile, have given up to the point that we can't believe and we can't accept and we can't expect a promise. We hear the promises of God, but our loss of hope forces us to reject them. Hopelessness sets in on us so that I can believe the promise I heard about you, but I cannot believe the promise that I heard about me. What we see in this account is that Elisha spoke the truth, 
It was the truth. He wasn't playing games. He wasn't making stuff up. He spoke the truth, right? But hopelessness can erode our faith so that we come to the place where we actually hear truth. And we can't distinguish between our situation and a word from God. You hear Sunday after Sunday that I stand up here or somebody stands up here and we declare that God is able. We declare Sunday after Sunday through songs, through words, that God has provision. We declare Sunday after Sunday that God has authority. We declare Sunday after Sunday that God has the ability to interrupt your situation and to bring healing and to bring wholeness and to bring life and to bring finances and to bring peace and to bring joy and to bring restoration. But we come to this place if we become hopeless where we begin to say, that can't happen for me. You literally battle because you get the promise of these things. And it's almost like you had this out-of-body experience because when you hear these things being said and these proclamations being made, it's like in your spirit you want to go, yes, Lord. But somewhere during the mix, you almost like, it's almost like this out-of-body experience where all of a sudden you, you're out of your own mouth. You didn't even anticipate it. You didn't even mean to say it. it. It's just like something rises up in you and out of your own mouth. It's like you're standing to the side and you hear yourself go, no, Lord. That could happen for the pastor, but that, but I'm not a pastor, so that couldn't happen for me. We hear the promises come, and it, it, we want to so desperately grab on. I've been longing to hear this promise. I've been longing to get this word. I've been praying and fasting for this. Now the word comes, and the prophet stands up. The man of God stands up. The woman of God bumps into me and says, God's going to do this. And it's like I go, yeah, no, Lord. My obstacle is too big. My situation is too complicated. I'm too far gone. Hopelessness is dangerous because it will cause you to reject truth. Hopelessness must be uprooted out of your life. Listen to me this morning. Listen to me this morning. If we don't get rid of hopelessness out of all of our hearts, we are wasting our time coming together Sunday after Sunday declaring the words of God because you will never embrace them as truth for you. We've got to get rid of the hopelessness. The second thing I recognize in this account is this, is that hopelessness will tempt you to settle for a substitute. The woman teaches us this very powerful lesson. She teaches us that in the middle of a hopeless moment, if we are not careful, we w- we've got to stay on guard because in the middle of a hopeless moment, we will, we will settle for less than. The account is this. The boy goes out to work with his dad. He gets sick. He sends him home. He dies. The mom runs for help. And as she's approaching from a long ways off, the man of God is on a mountain. He looks out and he sees her. I don't know how he recognized her, but he did. And he sends his servant, his intern, his apprentice, his slacky. There's another word you don't hear very often. But his second in command. He sends him to go find out what's wrong. 
But the woman recognizing that this is a hopeless situation, she had already witnessed the fact that her son was dead. He wasn't asleep. There's no pulse. He's not faking it. This is a real issue. This is a life or death moment, right? She recognizes that, and when the servant comes out, she bypasses him. Kind of forward, don't you think? I mean, shouldn't she have just been satisfied getting the attention she was already getting? He sent his best man to me to talk to me. She sent, he sent his, his trusted confidant to talk to me, right? And instead, she pushes past him to get to Elisha. And in that moment, she teaches us that settling for a substitute will never work. I would submit to you this morning that it's a good thing that she didn't settle because as, as try as he might, uh, and try and try to act like Elisha all he wanted to go through what he had seen Elisha do take the very steps take the exact actions that he'd watched Elisha do in the past but what we discover is that the proof is in the pudding because he shows up on the scene and he goes up in the upper room and he lays his staff across the little boy and the little boy is still dead this woman somehow knew that if you need to get to Batman, you can't sell for Robin. Right? Am I right this morning? Okay, I want to make sure you agree with me. Say that again. Am I right this morning? Okay, you're going to be sad you said yes here in a second. Because I want to know how many of us, because we have allowed hopelessness to strangle us, how many of us settle for substitutes? How many of us have been promised healing and yet we, sat, we are satisfied and we settle for managing illness? How many of us have been promised life more abundantly but after years of less than it causes us to lose hope and we have come to this place where we read that Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly but we settle for life. How many of us have settled for a, the, the, the fulfillment or we've been promised fulfillment but we just settled for a warm body because we don't want to be alone on a Friday night again and although we've been promised fulfillment, we settle for sex. How many of us have been given a promise for peace but we settle for at least we didn't fight for three days? I want you to understand that hopelessness has its own language. We adopt the language of hopelessness. Let me, let me share with you the language of hopelessness so when you hear it come out of your own mouth, you will identify that there's a principality at work, a principle, a way of thinking, and you will arrest that and stop that. Here's one. This is normal. Us living like this is normal. That's the lie of hopelessness. Well, we fight all the time. This is just normal. Everybody does this. No, they don't. Boy, it is quiet in here. We're broke. We're just living paycheck to paycheck, just barely getting by. That's normal. No, that's a lie. I'm always sick. That's just going to be normal for me. That's who I am. I'm sorry. That has got to be a lie from the pit of hell. That is the language of hopelessness. Because I heard a statement that says this, by his stripes we are healed. That is a promise that we are to receive. And yet we buy into the language of hopelessness. How about this one? It will never change. 
it will always be like this. This is just the way it's going to be. The language of hopelessness. And I want to declare to you this morning that, that the question that we need to ask is not how it is right now. The question that we must continue to ask to combat the spirit and the principality of hopelessness is not how is it right now. The question we've got to ask is what is the promise? What's it supposed to be like? How is it going to be? What has God said about my situation? What has God promised about what I'm going through? What has the word declared about what I'm going through? Why would I want to settle for what I see right now when there's a promise I can hold on to? See, I, uh, too many of us, we need a touch from Jesus. And what we do is we settle for a touch of, of man. We need, we need a touch from Jesus. And instead, we let the momentary satisfaction of a purchase distract us. We let the distraction of distraction distract us. And instead of getting the life-giving touch, we end up with a substitute. We need to press into Jesus. We need to get a word from Jesus. We need to get everything Jesus has promised us. It reminds me of account after account where people would press through to get to Jesus. Sometimes you got to press through what everybody else is saying. Sometimes you got to press through what you're saying. Sometimes you got to press through what you see. Sometimes you got to press through what you think. You've got to press through and get a hold of Jesus because you cannot settle for a substitute. In hopeless moments, we are always tempted to settle for a substitute because hopelessness will always try to get you to settle for almost. Almost. I've discovered something. I want to share this with you. Maybe this is not news to you, but this is a lesson I've learned over the course of my life. I've learned that substitutes make the journey, but they can't produce life. Isn't it interesting how substitutes always seem to attach themselves to, uh, themselves to our life and they walk through life with us, but they never produce life? They, okay. Uh, let me tell you the names of the people. No, I'm playing. They're substitutes. They don't produce life. They promise life, but they leave you dead. This woman held out for the real deal, and it saves her son's life life we must fight back against hopelessness and by doing so we gain life it means that most likely listen to me carefully this morning I told you last week that hopelessness will cause you to dismiss or attack the assigned but you are spiritually mature enough to understand that not only does God assign people to us the enemy assigns people to us and some of you are being trapped in hopelessness because the enemy has assigned substitutes to you. And they are doing their dead level best. I said that word, dead level best. To distract you and keep you from getting your eyes on the promise that God has given you. And to keep you from believing the promise that you heard. There are people in your life, and some of them share your last name. Who will, when they hear the prophetic word of God go out over you, or if you find a promise in scripture and you begin to claim that scripture, they will step in and they seem like legit, but what they do is they step in and they will begin to distract you, if not completely attack that word and try to kill that word in your life. They never produce life. You'll have to cut them off if you're going to get rid of hopelessness. Because every time you rise up and say, I'm going to hold on for what God says, they will attack you. 
and try to convince you that that's not for you. How many sitting here today have become so hopeless that if I called your name out and I prophesied healing over you, you would resist? No, my Lord. My sickness is too bad. I've had this like for 30 years. It's just the doctor said it's just mine. I, I'm just going to have to learn to manage it. How many of you sitting here today, if somebody took this microphone and began to prophesy and say, hey, so-and-so, I'm telling you that God is going to be your provider. How many of you would say, oh, no, God, you don't, you don't, no, my Lord, you don't understand. I'm so far gone. I'm so in debt that the creditors are breathing down my neck. I'll never get out of this mess. It took me 25 years to get into this mess. How are you going to? Hopelessness. of you, if I was to call you by name and say, God's got somebody for you. You're never going to find him in the bar, but he's got somebody for you. And you're going to have to wade through a bunch of charlatans and fakers, but he's got somebody for you if you'll hold out. How many of you go, oh, no, Lord, I, I always attract the wrong kind. Every time, every time I've ever, I, I, just, I just can't pick people right, and so it's, I'm just going to be hurt. That's just the way I'm going to live the rest of my life hurt. That's what hopelessness does. And I am calling us as a, as a congregation, as a family, to come back to the place, listen to me, I'm calling us to come back to the place where we will believe the report of the Lord. What doesn't line up with what I see, I don't care. I, <laughs> the best promises never do. I want us to come back to the place where what God said we could have, we believe we can have. And anything less than that, we dismiss it and say, God, I'm holding out. I'm not going to settle for less than. I'm not going to settle for just a small touch. I'm not just going to settle for a small miracle. I'm not going to settle for I'm a little bit better than I was yesterday. I'm going to hold on for everything you've got for me. And the only way to do that Fight off the principality of hopelessness and surround ourselves with people that will speak to the promises in our life rather than allowing us to wallow in the pain of our past and to be overtaken by hopelessness. God can restore you, but if we continue to wallow in loss as if restoration is some far-fetched fantasy, then we will live in death. But I just want to prophetically say to you this morning that God is sending a word to each and every one of you right now. There's a promise that God spoke to you years ago that you've discarded as fantasy. And I'm just saying to you this morning, prophetically, I believe this is happening this, this, this morning right now. I am saying to you that God has either sent you a word or this is a new word. This is a word that's pulling on the old word. And I understand that life has layered hopelessness on you and that life took turns you didn't expect and you've encountered pain in situations you didn't expect and you didn't anticipate. And so now you go, that word is dead. I prove proclaim over you a, a word that calls to that promise and said that promise is not dead and that promise is not gone and that promise is not so old that he can't bring it back to life again you've just got to fight off hopelessness and hold on I want you to stand with me this morning the lady said this is a proven man of God 
I'm certain. I'm absolutely certain this is a man of God. And yet when the man of God that she was certain was speaking, the word of God spoke to her. She couldn't accept it. I've never stood up here and said, hey, I'm a verifiable card carrying, membership card owning, man of God club. I never said that. But this is what I know. It seems kind of crazy, but God does speak through me. I don't deserve it. And my prayer every Sunday is that when I stand up here or when Pastor Woody stands up here or my dad stands up here or anybody else that takes this microphone, when they speak, you don't hear their voice. You hear the voice of God. And this morning right now, what I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do is to do what I cannot do. I'm asking Him to use my voice, but let it be God's voice. And I'm praying that what it will do in this moment is it will call to the deep places of your life where decades ago, you heard God. And He said things to you. He made promises to you. Stuff like, your children will all be saved and serve me. Stuff like this, you will live a life of peace. Stuff like, I will be your provider, you'll never lack. Stuff like, I'll make you whole. Stuff like, I'll redeem the time. You wasted all those years running from me, but then he speaks and he says, I'm going to redeem that time. I'll give it back to you. And in your last days, you'll be greater. I'm asking you to hear the voice of God, call to the promises, and I'm calling you to quit selling for substance. Father, this morning I pray that somehow, some way, you would take hopelessness. We hide it so well. Like the woman, we're asked, is there anything wrong? And we smile and we say, we've got it all together. We don't need anything. But deep down inside of us, there are broken places and there are hopeless places. God, I'm asking you to grab hopelessness by the neck in our lives this morning. And I'm praying that you would drag it out of us. Uproot it. Kill it in us. God, I pray that we would come back to that place where we can believe again. Where we hold on again. God, I'm praying that in this very moment, individuals in this congregation would begin to hear the promises of God roll over in their spirit again. Dead and buried, they thought. But I pray that in this moment, right now, they would hear the voice of God call to the deep promises of their life. this in Jesus name if you're here this morning and God has spoken a promise over your life and you feel like you've let that promise die you heard God say stuff to you 
And now you have come to the conclusion, you're almost to the conclusion that life is too far gone. It'll never be what he said it would be. I'm asking you to come to this altar and find a place to pray quickly. I have a promise from God that I've let die. I've let get covered up. Come on, if you're here this morning, you say, God has spoken prophetic promises over my life. And I've let hopelessness almost kill those things. Would you move quickly? I'm not going to wait long. If you're here and that's you, I need you to move out quickly. This is one of the ways we uproot hopelessness as we take steps. Well, you don't know what I'm facing. Doesn't matter what you're facing. He knows, he knows, he knows. Anybody else? He said, I didn't have to go through life with what I'm dealing with, but I can't seem to get over it. You don't understand, Steve. Life dealt me. It's changed. There's no way we can. His word never fails. His word never comes back void. His word always produces what he said it will produce. If you have a promise from God and you are holding on to that promise, would you just step out real quickly and come and help me pray for these? Come on, would you step out quickly? These are folks that have said they're struggling to keep a promise alive. Would you come and find one of them and, and call to the promise? Call to the promise. Speak to the promise. Come on, as they come and pray for you this morning, would you just accept the fact that as they're ministering to you, you could be hearing the word of God through them in this moment? You don't have to give up. You don't have to give up. Come on, would you stretch your hands this way, Father, this morning. We pray over these that have come forward and said, I'm struggling. I don't know if I can hang on to the promise any longer. I've almost let it die. God, we speak to the promises that you've given us. We declare over them that the promises are not dead. And we refuse to settle for a substitute any longer. We, we refuse to believe that it cannot happen to us, happen for us, happen in us, happen through us. We declare this morning, we claim the promises of God. We ask you for life. We ask you for life. We ask you to produce life in these situations right now. God, I pray for endurance and courage to hang on in spite of what they may see right now. That is not what they need to focus on. God, I pray that instead their focus would shift to what you said. What you said is what we believe for. Come on, it seems like it's dead, but it's not.
Come on, sing this with authority. Proclaim this this morning. Come on, every dead promise, come alive in the name of Jesus. Father, we declare this morning that every promise that you've given us, even if when we look at it, it looks like it's dead and gone, we ask it to come alive. God, I pray that every promise that's been given over this body would come alive. I pray that every promise that we received individually would come alive. We stand against these principalities as they try to layer attacks on us to give up hope. We refuse to lose heart. We refuse to lose hope because we are confident that we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. We stand with David when we declare that we knew that that the enemy was against us, but we knew that God would overcome. We claim the promises of God for our lives and for this family that we call passion. May we see every promise come to pass. We claim those things as ours. They're part of our inheritance. And we give up giving up. Y'all miss that. We give up giving up. Because if you said it, we believe it. We claim it as ours. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Would you turn to your neighbor right now and say, you can trust his promises. They're going to come to pass. Come on, tell them. The promises will come to pass. It's been a privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. 
To find more Passion Church resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.